Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Listen for what God is saying to you. Now Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, through her husband from the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind somebody in whose eyes I might find favor. Naomi replied to her, go, my daughter. So she went. She arrived and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. By chance, it happened to be a portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He said to the harvesters, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his young man, the one who was overseeing the harvesters, To whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was overseeing the harvesters answered, She's a young Moabite woman, the one who returned from, with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She said, Please let me glean so that I may gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. She arrived and has been on her feet from morning until now, and has sat down for only a moment. Boaz said to Ruth, Haven't you understood, my daughter? Don't go glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting and go after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. Whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from, the, from what the young men have filled. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning, Urban Village. My name is Rich Pack. Pastor Emily is preaching up in Evanston. Uh, she'll be back next week. Um, but uh, before I begin, um, I'll just take a moment in prayer. Holy God, who comes to us in unexpected ways, who relates to us when we feel alienated, who relates to us when... We are in despair, who comes to us and delights uh, in just unexpected moments of grace. We pray that you come to us in that way here today, and uh, that way uh, when we need it most. Um, uh, we invite you uh, to speak uh, through your words, uh, somehow interpreted uh, through my mouth, and uh, may we... Uh, you had a blessing uh, to your word today. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So the running joke about a lot of comedians that I've been watching lately, I watch a lot of comedy by uh, specifically uh, Asian comics who grew up in immigrant homes. And a common theme, so like almost every Asian, com Asian like comic starts their bit with this idea that Asian parents love keeping secrets. Um, they just love keeping secrets. I 
come from a family where I am constantly, like as an adult, figuring out new secrets of my family that I'm not exactly sure why they were ever kept secret. I, for instance, still have no idea what my dad's childhood was like. My dad died when I was young, but those stories were never shared. Um, all I know is somehow him and my mom magically got married and they immigrated to the US. Um, I had to discern through a lot of my uh, other, uh, other relatives of bits and pieces of my dad's childhood, but I still don't know much about it. I don't know how my parents met. Um, I just learned a few years ago um, that on my mom's side that my mom had several siblings who died when they fled North Korea and came to the South. Um, no one ever talks about what it was like to go through the Korean War or afterwards live uh, through a brutal military dictatorship. People still sort of pretend, um, I've shared this before in testimony, people still uh, pretend in my family and my community that my dad died in an accident when he actually killed himself. A lot of these details I had to kind of piece together and figure out myself. But of all the secrets that were kind of like shocking to me that I didn't figure out when I was a kid um, was that my family was poor. I had no idea our family actually had no money. I just thought my mom was super cheap. <laughs> so whenever we'd go shopping, I'd ask for something. And um, my mom never told me it was too expensive or that we couldn't afford it. She just said it was a waste of money. Um, so. We weren't poor, other people just like to waste their money, um, was kind of like the narrative that you know, my mom gave to me, right? So you know, I didn't realize uh, how little money we had or that our housing was subsidized or that my mom's, like how like, low and close to minimum wage my mom's wages were until I actually had to apply for college financial aid when I was uh, 18. Um, and that was the first time I actually like you know, my mom was forced to like show me her bank statements and her W-2s and her tax returns, right? It was, it was really like shocking to me. And like, it actually would have been more helpful because I could have applied for like need-based grants and scholarships <laughs> before, uh, <clears throat> before I saw those forms. But, but I, did, I did go through a big hustle of trying to gather as much financial aid as I could. But I think part of what made this ruse successful um, that I was kind of shielded from uh, a sense of being poor or being in poverty was that I ate really well. Like, I never actually was hungry. Um, like, I never got to eat steak, really, um, unless, like, some, uh, some other uh, family friend would take us out to Sizzler, which is, like, you know, the number one place Korean immigrants love to go to. Not for the steak, but for the salad bar. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> but in fact, feasts and dinner parties were a regular part of our life. People constantly came to our dinner table, so it seemed like we had money to um, provide for all this food for sometimes 20, 30 guests in this 800 square foot apartment. Um, <clears throat> uh, and then we were always invited over for other people's dinner parties as well. Um, in fact, I would guess that at least once or twice a week, we were over at someone else's place eating, or someone was over at our place uh, to eat, whether they were friends or family, uh, or often new, uh, new immigrants that had just came to, uh, to our city. So despite the 
economic gap between my individual family and the families uh, that were part of our community, for the most part, we ate the same food as everyone else around us, just with a little less meat sometimes. And like now that I think about it, I grew up on a mostly vegetarian diet, and like you know, I I realized that it wasn't necessarily by choice, but by necess by necessity. But we ate well, partly because when friends and family made Costco runs, they shared in the abundance. Like, who needs, like, 20 cuts of, like, chicken breasts, right? <laughs> um, who needs, like, you know, have you ever seen the Costco salmon packs? They, like, literally pack, like, two giant salmon in those salmon packs. It goes bad pretty quickly. So, you know, they're just like, hey, I picked up this thing of salmon. Here's, here's half of it for you. Um, a lot of people in our community had home gardens, so we constantly had a fresh stream of vegetables that we couldn't, like my mom's always trying to creatively figure out things to do with zucchini. Um, if you uh, have a community garden, I'm sure you feel the same way too. Um, <laughs> now it's kale, um, or sometimes tomatoes. Like Nate, I think, is constantly giving out kale. If, you go to, if you're ever invited to their place, it's all, Kale salad is always part of the menu. But I didn't realize until high school graduation how much of my life was made possible by the generosity of others. And when I graduated and I finally saw those forms, my mom had actually cataloged everything that someone had provided for me, whether it was soccer cleats, paying for like registration for like basketball teams, baseball teams, like swim lessons. Like my mom wrote it all down and I had to write the longest thank you cards of all time. So for me, especially through my mom's life, no other Bible story resonates as deeply and personally for me as Ruth's story. In fact, my mom's life parallels Ruth's story in so many ways. My mom was an immigrant widow um, who becomes a primary caretaker of her mother-in-law. Uh, she has no family in the States, um, no blood family. Um, my mom decides to stick it out in the U.S. just uh, so that, like, my sister and I don't have to move back to Korea, move to Korea, and like try to figure out how to go to school in a different language. But it was amazing to me that my mom never goes back uh, because her life, I think, in so many ways, would have been so much easier. She uh, might have gotten remarried. Um, she would have had tons of family. Um, she wouldn't have to go to a job where she constantly faced racism and people called her kimchi breath, which made my mom stop eating kimchi for like five years, which is like the saddest thing ever. Um, <clears throat> and my mom's story... Uh, while my mom's story paralleled Ruth in her struggle, it was also... Uh, I find so much of like the narrative between what happens uh, with Boaz uh, alive in the community that surrounded us. My mom never got remarried, but so much of God's faithfulness to our family was present in the way that our family was redeemed and um, found connection uh, through God's faithfulness through the community that we were surrounded by. Now, the reality is that for many folks in poverty, um, Hunger is also a part of their reality. They don't have the benefit of a social safety net that was extended to my family, that was extended by our extended family, our church family, our uh, 
immigrant community. And one of the fundamental truths I think that the Bible highlights uh, about being impoverished or being in strangling debt or being orphaned or being widowed in a patriarchal society is that these conditions are not just a state of being where one's very survival is at stake. That yes, it, to be poor is often to be hungry, but one is often hungry because as socially oriented creatures, uh, when we are impoverished or when we are made vulnerable or when we are marginalized, we lose our connection to people. That somehow we have been removed from the rest of humanity, that being poor means that we are both susceptible to being hungry and from being alienated from humanity. And ultimately, I would add that it is to feel that one is alienated from God. In the story of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, we can intimately sense that this alienation from society and from God is present in Naomi's life. Naomi is an Israelite woman who, along with her husband, Elimelech, and two sons, are forced into migrating into the enemy territory of Moab. And they move there because, through forced migration because in their homeland in Bethlehem, there's a famine. But while they were in Moab, they make a life for themselves and... Uh, Naomi's two sons marry um, Moabite women, one of them being Ruth. But the story takes another tragic turn when Naomi's husband and her two sons die before any of them are able to bear children. Naomi then returns back to Bethlehem with her foreign daughter-in-law, Ruth, and her situation couldn't be worse. Not only is she a widow with no sons and no standing in society, but Ruth, her childless, widowed, immigrant daughter-in-law from an enemy country, insisted on following her back home. So needless to say, Naomi stands on the margins of society and understandably feels that she has been abandoned and marginalized by God. Naomi, whose name means pleasant, says, she says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought disaster upon me? Naomi asks the question, why does this happen? Our current sermon series that uh, started last week, we asked the question, how do we serve those, what, how do we relate to and serve those whom disaster has fallen upon them? Whom through famine, through uh, whatever tragic circumstances come to a place where they now stand on the margins of society. How do we serve? How do we relate? What actions do we take after our thoughts and prayers have been made inadequate? When faced with human suffering, the question we often ask is why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to them? And the Bible, I think through many texts, reveals that the tempting answer is always to say that everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason can be that God just wants to teach us something. But more often, the tempting reason is that the person must have done something wrong to deserve their punishment. That their suffering is a form of punishment. Even Naomi, at least to some extent, is operating under this worldview. We, also, we see this worldview come alive most strongly in the book of Job. When Job loses everything, 
and he's going through immense suffering, we find that even his family and his closest friends are all convinced that he must have done something. Job's like, hey, I didn't do anything. And we know that God's like, yeah, that guy's, you know, we're good. But his friends need to find a reason for why Job is suffering. And, you know, the frustrating thing about Job is that we never get an actual uh, adequate answer for this reason. At the end, when Job asks God, why did this happen to me, God goes on this long, like, poetic, like, diatribe, like, you know, like, where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when I, you know, created the universe? Like, you just won't understand. And God, uh, God basically says nothing. At the same time, I'll saying a lot, right? But I think, I don't, I, don't, I don't actually think that God was actually replying to Job's question, why did this happen? But I think jo- God was actually replying to Job's friends who were saying there must be a reason for this happen. And God's reply is, you'll never know. But it's not because Job deserved this. And likewise for Ruth and Naomi's suffering. At least according to the text in Ruth, the famine just happens. There's no reason why. Like, there is no, like, God's punishing Israel uh, or the people in Bethlehem. Just the tragedy happens. It's just a catastrophe. Their husband's and son's death, they just happen. There's no, we don't, we're not given a reason for why the men in their life die. The book of Ruth is not interested in justifications for human suffering. What the book is more interested in is in questions like, what's our responsibility when there is, when we are confronted with human suffering? Like, where is God in in the midst of all of this tragedy? What does it mean to serve the hungry and the poor when they are in our midst, when they stand on the edges and margins of our society? I think, first and foremost, we know that from the story of Ruth that God has not fully abandoned Ruth, not fully abandoned Naomi, because of how committed Ruth is to Naomi, um, who is given every opportunity to leave her. In fact, I'm pretty sure Naomi thinks it would be more convenient if Ruth would leave, like, uh, to come, to go back home with someone, your friends, or your community would think was the enemy, was probably more problematic than it was worth, right? Naomi's like, how do I take care of myself and this other person that's going along? But Ruth remains faithfully committed to her. In fact, Naomi kind of gives up, and Ruth is the one that takes the actions that lead to their eventual redemption and uh, return to full standing in society. It's ultimately through Ruth's faithfulness and daily hustle that Naomi is saved from hunger and redeemed. But we also find that God in the passage is also present in the law, right? So, you know, in Ruth, it doesn't talk about it, but we also know that God is present through the law because Boab, Boaz, not Boab, uh, fulfills his civic duty according to God's Israelite public policy to take responsibility for taking care of people like Ruth and Naomi. Upon first glance, it's easy to think of in this text that Boaz is the hero of the story because here's this, hey, relatively wealthy guy. He's got a lot of money. Other people don't seem to care, and he steps in and helps these women out. 
But if we look at Israelite law and God's public policy for the Israelites, found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, it largely reveals that Boaz was just doing what he was supposed to do. He was literally just doing what he was required to do. So here's a quick summary of that law. God says, don't mistreat foreigners and widows and the poor. Take care of them. Treat foreigners equally under the law. Give interest-free loans to the poor and sell them food without profit. Every seven years, the poor get to use your land. You get to take a break, and the poor get to use your land, and they get to take as much as they want from it. And also, the animals around there get to grab stuff, too. Also, don't harvest the edges of your land so that the foreigners and the widows can gather from it. Pay your workers who are poor fair wages and pay them on time. It's very explicit. Pay them on time because they need it. And every three years, a tenth of your wages has to go to foreigners, orphans, widows, and also your priest. But God's law is very explicit in how Israelite society is to take responsibility in taking care of its most vulnerable members in society. So basically, again, Boaz is just doing what he's supposed to do. But at the same time, the subtext of Ruth's story suggests that not, not every privileged Israelite citizen or landowner was fulfilling their civic obligations. We see that some were just doing the the bare minimum, and did not really actually care about the well-being of the marginalized. For instance, Boaz says to Ruth, work my fields, because you're going to get assaulted in someone else's field. The men are going to get you. Like, rape culture is alive in the fields. And so Boaz ensures Ruth's safety while she also gleans from his fields. But, not only is God present in what people are commanded to do, we also see that God is present in the story, the reasons why the law exists, the stories and how people are to relate to the people that they are called to serve, the people that they are called to be responsible for. So another difference between Boaz and some of the landowners is in how they relate to those gleaning on the edges of their fields. Boaz makes active effort in relating to Ruth. He asks Ruth, or asks his worker, what's your story? What's her story? Like, why is she here? Why is this person there? And, like, he's, as, you know, it turns out that Ruth is uh, a distant relative through Naomi. But he takes care to take notice that she is vulnerable to being assaulted. He doesn't seem to have a pre-constructed story about Ruth that there's a reason for why she's on the margins and that she deserves to be there. He relates to her with dignity. And you see, God's law doesn't just provide a list of rules and responsibilities for landowners, landowners, but God's law also provides a narrative and context for why they should feel responsible. For example, God in Leviticus 19.34 says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as you love yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And God says over and over again in these laws, there's a lot of them, that says over and over again, Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Remember, you were foreigners in Egypt. And remember that I am Yahweh, your Lord, who brought you out of that land and gave you this land that you reside in now. And it still belongs to me. That land doesn't belong to you. It still belongs to me. 
and remember that this God has been compassionate and has heard your cries and heard, has heard the needs of God's people. In these laws, God is calling us to continually remember that we have earned nothing by ourselves, that everything that we have is through God's providence and not our individual accomplishment. In God's eyes, there are no self-made men. God reminds us that everything we have, that everything that we have earned still belongs to God and that God still wants those things to be given to those who need it. God calls us to that history. God calls us to that memory because God desires for us to serve out of humility and gratitude rather than a sense of superiority or paternalism. Or worse yet, to create distance. Another fascinating aspect of these laws is that many of them are written and placed in the context for the rules of Sabbath. Many of us know and have grew up with this idea that Sabbath-keeping is about renewing our relationship with God. Some of us have gone to a place where maybe it's a little bit about self-care, right? But God's laws also suggest to us that just as it is important to restore and renew our relationship with God, it is, all, it is equally important to renew and restore our relationship with others. God commands in Leviticus 25, as God talks about the Sabbath, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Don't take interest or profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Sabbath isn't really about self-care. It's about restoring our relationship with God and our neighbors so that they may continue to be among us as our neighbors, not on the edges. What I believe that God is trying to do is rewrite the story that exists between those who are marginalized and in need of help and those who are able and responsible to provide it. God is trying to change the narrative between service provider and service receiver. That under God's law, that there is no hierarchy. That God relates to us as equals. That ultimately we need each other and that our salvation and destiny is bound up with one another. God is continually working for our redemption and reconciliation because God wants us to be family. God says, help them so that they can continue to live among you. So that they can live among you. The story we tell about ourselves, others, the story we tell ourselves about others makes all the difference in how we feel responsible for them, in how we relate to them. We are constantly tempted to construct narratives that create distance between those to whom God is calling us to serve. I mean, how many times have you seen someone as you're walking down the street and they're, you know that they're about to ask for food or for money? and you rapidly create a story in your head that justifies why you're going to look down and walk by them, right? That's the first story that, at least for me, that, like, comes to my mind. I have to, like, I don't, I'm not, like, do I have cash? Oh, I don't, I don't have cash, so I'm going to walk by. Or, like, I'm, I'm in a hurry. Um, um, there are lots of reasons. Or that, like, I've seen this person there. They're there every day. And whatever money I'm able to give, it's not really going to make a difference. 
the first story that comes to mind not, is not, oh, this person is also a child of God. This person isn't someone who is my neighbor, even. Even though they're there every day, they live in the neighborhood. I mean, we see them along the midway as you come in today. The story that I constantly am struggling to deconstruct is the story that is constantly creating distance between me and them. And I've done it probably hundreds, maybe thousands of times. But what if the story we first tell isn't about justifying why we should remain estranged from that person? What if the story we told ourselves about that person that is about to approach us or that has just given up and stayed on the margins? What if, they are, what if the first story we tell is that they are a beloved child of God? What if that person, we, the story we tell is that person shares a similar humanity to me? What if the story we tell is maybe there is no good reason for why they're suffering? What if that person was a neighbor rather than a stranger? What changes if the story that we tell is that we are God's family somehow together? I believe that this is the story that ultimately Jesus comes to tell. That Jesus comes... Right? God, for, you know, as we read through the Old Testament, God, you know, there is this sense, at least for us Christians in the way we interpret the Bible, that God has somehow been distant from us. That God has somehow been out there, like, making decisions on our behalf, good or bad. That for some reason that good or bad things are happening to us but that somehow in Jesus that God decides that he's going to become one of us, that he's going to relate to us, that God is going to stand in, outside of judgment and just gather people together like they were his family. That those who are rich, that those who are poor, that they can sit and share a meal together. That those who might be suffering mental illness and those who might be well might be together. Those who work are agents of the state as tax collectors or those who are, have been exploited by them can sit equally together. You know, I never felt poor or the ruse happened because at all of these tables, I was an equal. We sang bad karaoke together. We ate too much food um, even though the pastor said you shouldn't drink, I saw all the adults get drunk anyway. Um, this, these were the tables that I got to sit at week after week after week. And while people did provide my family assistance, it was never done out of a sense of paternalistic favor. They weren't trying to be my savior. They just felt that they were called to be responsible for our family, that we were family, and that they were going to treat them as such. And that's how we were going to live together, so that we could continue to live among them. And so, I would like you to think about, as we make our packets, not as something to then, like, like, Conveniently give away so we don't have to feel a little less guilty. 
but it's an opportunity to look into someone's eye and tell a different story. Or Rich Havard mentions to us in the notes for the South Loop community table that, that this isn't something that we're doing for homeless people, that it is an opportunity to sit and eat together, and that, that anyone there can have a role in providing the food, providing the meal, whether they are homeless or whether they help pay and prepare the meals. That everyone has a role to play and that everyone is there. In God's story, God doesn't just save the one sheep out of the hundred because that sheep needs saving. God saves that sheep because the other 99 really need that other sheep. So please consider, as we, we will not solve poverty through our acts of service. You know, as Emily mentioned, public, the public policy, those, those things are going to have to figure it out, right? No amount of like church food pantries or soup kitchens is ever going to replace something like SNAP. The billions of dollars that are provided each year. But what we can do as a church is change the story and how we relate. Do these people deserve to live among us? You know, we think about gentrification and uh, displacement and. Uh, forced migration. How does this change if we can change this story? I, I believe, sincerely believe that we as Christians can change the world by changing this story and how we relate to them. Church budgets are dwindling, so we're not going to save it through necessarily our money, but we can do it through changing our story. So come to the table and be a guest at a God that calls us equally. Amen. Amen.